Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast, as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with former big league skipper and current MLB Network personality, Buck Showalter. Yeah, that's... that's... That's fantastic. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone. And today on the program, I sit down with the former Yankee, Diamondback, and Orioles skipper. who's named Manager of the Year three times and is a current analyst at MLB Network. Ladies and gentlemen, Buck Showalter. Buck, thanks for coming on the program. Brett, how are we looking? How's life? We're looking good. We got the World Series. I know this is going to come out a little bit after, ah, in the middle of the World Series. But uh, I know you're up there uh, doing some work, breaking it down. I'll tell you, these two teams that are there, uh, I'm like completely wrong at every step of the postseason. How, how are your predictions? Well, you know, I've, I've, through the years, I've learned not to make any because, you know, Harold Reynolds years ago, we were doing – the College World Series at ESPN, and it was one, probably the best thing I've ever been involved with as far as enjoyment. And we're on the set before the game, and they asked us to pick who was going to win. And Harold said, had a great answer. He said, if you think I'm going to predict what some 18- and 19-year-old kid's going to do for the next 10 days, you're crazy. And, you know, I think it's along the lines of some things that kind of get forgotten. That is there, these are human beings playing with emotions and, and – uh, you know, whether it be a mental or emotional situation, it's things that appear on paper don't always happen, and that's the only reason why you turn on TV. Is, you know, you don't want it to be predictable, but we can predict there's going to be a strikeout in the first inning and stand a pretty good chance that's going to happen. <laughs> in today's game, without a doubt. All right. Uh, my brother Aaron, I and, and it's it's kind of relevant, but it's not relevant. I know your real name's Nate. Everybody calls you Buck. I've always known you as Buck. Everybody knows you as Buck. With my with my brother, obviously everybody calls him Aaron, but I call him Arnie. Family members call him Arnie. Does anybody, immediate family or close or, or people that are close to you call you anything but Buck? Oh yeah. When I'm up in the when I know somebody my when my wife really wants my attention. Or the kids, or uh, someone I know from back home. Uh, before I started playing professionally, uh, it's Nat N A T for Nathaniel. You know, I'm with Nathaniel the third. My I got a grandson that's the fifth. So it's Nat. If I hear Nat, that jerks my head around. I know either my wife needs me, the kids need me, or somebody from back home's at the ball game. Okay. What about you? You got a nickname? I don't, you know, you know, my nicknames, I get probably, probably some of them we can't even say on the air, but uh, yeah. no, yeah. usually, gonna, I don't know. Mine's weird though, Buck. Cause it's like, you know, I, I had to, I had to kind of follow in the footsteps. So it's like, I'd have old timers come up to me when I was first getting into the game professionally and they'd look at me that, well, you're not Booney, you know, that's Ray, Ray's Booney. That's Ike Boone, but we call him Booney. And then, then it went through dad's generation and, and he played for a long time and, and nobody called my dad, Bob, they called him Booney. So it got to me yeah, and I, I don't know, it's just kind of, but we're all Booney, but I don't know. In Seattle, they called me 
the Boone, Boone. I don't know. But as far as a nickname, well, I really don't have one. I, I got mine in A-ball. Manager Ed Napoleon got me. But, uh, you know, sooner or later, and that's kind of missing from the game. I mean, gosh, we, we don't have any great nicknames anymore much. You know, unless some somebody nicknames them. A lot of guys came with them, you know. Also, quite frankly, Brad, I don't think they have the fun that we had, but that's a story for another day. But uh, we're missing a lot of good nicknames, not as many as you used to be. Yeah, and I think the nicknames now, Buck, they're just kind of, you know, like mine. Mine's boring. Booney. Well, you just throw an E on the end of Bo- But I like the ones coming in. Like, you got to ask, how did you get oh, that yeah. nickname? If your name's Johnson – and they call you yeah. Buck. There's got to be something behind it. We'll get to that later in the in the in the show because there's got to be I a story there. And I, yeah, and I want to hear about it. You're born in Florida, in the Panhandle. Uh, tell me about a young Nat Showalter. I know your dad was a teacher and a principal at your high school, but just tell me um, what you were like growing up as a kid. Was it always baseball? Were there other sports involved? No, you know, uh, Brett, it was uh, baseball season, the football season, the basketball season, and uh, just what you did. I was in the smallest public school I, I think we were in the state of Florida. I mean, you had to hustle for a prom date, and, uh, you know, I, I, it was an advantage for me because we had one grocery store. We had one post office, obviously. We had one uh, drugstore, one grocery. You just, you know, you knew everybody. And when you went to church on Sunday, uh, they would tell your mother how you treated everybody. So it was, uh, you know, try going to school with your dad's a principal and try to get away with something. So, you know, it was just sports to sports kept us out of trouble. And that's what we did. And to this day, when I look at a player's bio, I love when I see there have been multi-sport players because I think those guys, when you see these baseball-only travel guys, it's usually a red flag. And uh, I like to see whether it's soccer or, or lacrosse or golf or whatever, just something that made them get away from it for a little while. And if they come back to it, you know, they have a certain life for it. But, you know, we just, uh, in the little town, I didn't get seen a whole lot. My dad would take me down to Pensacola to play in some summer league games just to keep me active. But, you know, I had three sisters and they were trying to make ends meet. My mom was an RN, uh, director of nurses at a small little country hospital. And, you know, we were expected to sit down at the table at 6 o'clock and tell everybody about our day and go to bed, get up and do it again. But it, uh, I was lucky, looking back on it, having two parents involved in, in everything. And my dad was interested in being my father and not my pal. You know, he said, I'll, I'll be your friend later. Right now, I'm going to be your father. And it was, you know, there was a lot of standards that you're supposed to live up to, but uh, I wouldn't trade it for the world. That is so interesting. You know, I, I had that talk. Uh, last week, I've got twin boys. My youngest twin boys are seniors in high school now. And, you know, something had happened with whatever 17-year-olds do. And I was having this heart-to-heart with them in the car. And I did. I had a moment where I said exactly what you just said. I said, listen, buddy, mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not here to be your friend. I'm here to be your dad. And, you know, you might hate me right now. But it ain't going to change. It, and I'm not here to be your buddy. And the fact that you just said that it's weird because I had that conversation with him last week. Well, it's tough. There's, no, there's a lot of fathers who don't have the guts to have that. You know, heck, I can be your buddy. And you're like, I say yes all the time. But I remember, Brett, the first time I, I caught a touchdown pass my sophomore year in, in high school. And I, for some reason, my dad used to sit in the library in the end zone and with the lights out and it overlooked the end zone and watch the game. 
And I, for some reason, I jumped up in the air one time with a ball over my head and then gave it to the official. Oh, my gosh. He's waiting for me on the porch when I got home. And, son, by the grace of God, you act like you scored a touchdown by before, and by the grace of God, you might score again. But don't act like it's your first time ever in the end zone. And you're showing up your opponent. Now, whether that's cool or not cool in today's world, that's the way I was brought up. You know, you are. So it was important for him to, to point those things out. And it was some tough love, but it was unbelievable to me how much smarter my dad got from the time I was 14 till I was about 25. About 25, I said, you know what? He should have gotten a lot smarter lately. What is the typical answer from our kids? It's, uh, you don't even know, Dad. You have no clue. And I'm like, you're right. I was never 17. I never, I never <laughs> snuck in late after curfew. I never did any of those things you were doing. This is my first rodeo, and it's amazing. Oh, that's what I tell the players, Brad. I used to tell the guys, like, guys, listen, I've done everything you've done, okay? Trust me. I'm just trying to give you some shortcuts where the end game is here. You know, you can go down that road. And that's, that's part of coaching, too. Sometimes you got to let guys fail. You know, today's game, they want them to go from A to Z without going through the process sometimes. But, you know, that's the art of coaching and managing players is, you know, the process you go through and understanding it. And I think you hit on a good point, too, with the with the, the multi-sports. And, and I know it's 2021, and I know all the parents out there, their little Johnny's going to be the next whatever. But the chances of him being the next big star is slim to none. And and I and I like the new you know the the technology we have and the way you train and, and the way uh, you know the way you diet. I think use all those to your benefit. But playing all three sports is such. I think there's so much good in it. You know, if, first of all, you don't burn out. Secondly, I think by being on the football field, it teaches you things on the baseball field. I think by playing hoops, it helps you in football. It, it's just so much more well-rounded. And, and by the time football's over, you're, you can't wait to pick up a bat and start your baseball season. But, but when you go baseball to baseball to baseball to baseball, uh, I don't know. I, I think you still got to let these kids be kids. And, and uh, we're getting away from that a little bit. Hopefully, there'll be a little correction in the, in the near future. Well, that's what, you know, I go to some of these banquets and clinics and down there. Parents always say, what's your best advice you give us? I go, let your kid be a kid, just like you said. Let them have their teenage years. And first of all, the human body at 14, 13, 12 is not, it, it's not designed to play baseball year-round, to have that type of impingement and things on your shoulder and elbow and, and knees. It, first of all, half these guys' growth plates haven't even closed. And you talk to a lot of doctors later on, they can tell the guys that played year-round baseball and, and the gals that played. It's just, it doesn't work. And it, it's sad because really the, sometimes, you know, sometimes I'll bet you remember that sometimes the best, like, I don't know, coaching or whatever it was the off season of getting away from and going, wait a minute, what, what was I doing? You know, you get so close to it and you're grinding every day. Sometimes just getting away from it and letting everything settle in. And uh, it's like, I don't know, talking about a young player. I said, he'll figure it out. Just everybody stay out of his way. He's going to figure it out. But let's don't overcoach this. He's got a lot of natural ability. And, and uh, it's like Billy Martin told me one time, he goes, try as you may, you can't screw up the good ones. But the travel, the travel stuff, I think, is an issue in our country. I really do. It, it, and they don't realize there's only 11 and a half scholarships on 
most of these college teams anyway. While I got a quick second, want to give a shout out to DraftKings. We've partnered with DraftKings now, and they are the official sponsor of the Boone Podcast. Dan? Thanks, Boone. NFL fans, hungry for a big win this week? DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL, has you covered. New customers can bet just $5 on any NFL team to win their game. And if they do it, you win $200 in free bets. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. It's that simple. If Sportsbook isn't available in your state yet, DraftKings won't leave you empty-handed. Everyone can play for huge cash prizes all season long with DraftKings Daily Fantasy Sports Contests. DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. So why wait? Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code BOONE, B-O-O-N-E. Just bet five bucks on any NFL team to win their game and win $200 in free bets. If they win, you win with promo code BOONE. This week at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Minimum $5 deposit and $1 wager required. One per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. And now we're back to my conversation with Buck Showalter. So back to your high school. Um... What kind of player were you? What was the recruiting process? I know you you started off by going mm-hmm. to a junior. You went to a junior college, but yeah, Buck well, Walter was a senior player. in high school. Yeah, I was going to play football at high school, like most guys in the southeast. But uh, you know, I'm, I had a visit to Alabama as uh, the freshman football coach back when they had freshman football coaches. Also, the baseball coach Hayden Riley, and I, you know, he it was more baseball, and if I wanted, I could make the football team and. After watching a couple of practices, I realized that probably wasn't going to be a good idea. But uh, I wanted to play every day. I wasn't drafted out of high school. You know, I was in a little bitty school, and, you know, I hit 500 and 450 like everybody does in high school. And I got a call out of classroom. And uh, new college coach Ellis Duncan, who ended up scouting and being one of the top scouts during Toronto's heyday years ago with the Devon Whites and the Roberto Alomar group. But, uh, I played for him for two years at junior college after thinking about football. And then uh, after my sophomore year there, I was I went to Mississippi State. Still hadn't been drafted. And uh, I had a good year at Mississippi State and was first-team All-American and was drafted in the fifth round by the Yankees. But a lot of stuff in between, constant proving ground, playing the Cape Cod League, playing uh, in the AAA BA League that ended up in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. I mean, all in the pursuit of... Uh, you know, getting a chance to roll the dice. But I enjoyed baseball. It was fun. I never felt like it was something I was being pushed to do. But if it was, if I wanted to do it, my parents made it available to me. And I'm not real sure sometimes, Brett, how they did. Because they were putting three, you know, three girls through college. And it's tough. It's tough. I hadn't gotten an athletic scholarship. I probably wouldn't have been able to go. And I'd have been growing soybeans in the backfield there. Well, I'll tell you what, though you 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 said I was pretty good. You were doing doing my research for this Buck Showalter interview. I thought, wow, I didn't know Buck was that good. Mississippi State, he had four fifty nine. That, that's like you're in Olerud, uh territory. Uh, Dave Magadan back in the day, you're an All American. You're a fifth round pick. You you mentioned you went to Cape Cod, and 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 I, uh, you know, nowadays that's what I do think is really cool about 
the college leagues they have now. Back when you played, it was probably Cape Cod or Alaska. Pick one, and that's where all the 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 elite college. Yeah, the elite college players went. I went to Alaska. I never got to the Cape Cod League, but um, you know, where'd you play in Alaska? Uh, I was a goal panner. So yeah, my dad was my dad was a goal panner and my uncle was a goal panner. So it kind of it was kind of I kind of got railroaded in, you know, as soon as I was eligible, I got a call from the goal panner. It was a great experience. It was different. I'd never been to Alaska. Sun never went down. Uh, I went fishing a couple times, never caught one salmon, still bitter about that. What? But the overall experience was pretty good. I, I had a really good time. Yeah, I played in Kenai Peninsula. I played in Cape first. I understand I'm from, I'm a little rural city in Northwest Florida. And all of a sudden I go to Cape Cod after playing in a small junior college in Northwest Florida. And Brett, my eyes got open. They opened up those colleges, the things that I had only heard about. I was like, Oh my God. I was a short order cook up there, cooked breakfast in the morning, took a nap, washed my uniform, laid out a few line drives and hit the streets. It was an eye opener for me. And, uh, and the next year, you know, I got drafted by the Yankees, and uh, I was scheduled to go to Alaska, and I went up there for almost two weeks, played for the Kenai Peninsula Oilers. I remember time. them. Oh, baby. And uh, that had a lot to do with me signing with the Yankees because I was like, hey, you come up another $1,000, I'll come. $13,000, fifth round. And I still got it in a savings account. My dad made me never touch it, so. That, and I got my college, so I, could go, so I signed two contracts, one with the Yankees and one with my parents, saying that I would go back and finish up my degree, which I did in the offseason. Very cool. You go off to the minor leagues. I, I checked this out. 294 career in the minor leagues. That's that's getting it done. It's not like you're struggling. Once you got to pro ball, uh, what kind of prospect were you? How, how would you have, uh, evaluate yeah. Buck Showalter? Well, well, I guess one of the cool things I, I, before I leave, I, uh, I broke Thurman Munson's record for batting average in the Cape Cod League. I think it still stands, but I got a telegram from Thurman Munson. I just wanted to say, everybody thought of this guy being some curmudgeon, you know, kind of not friendly. You should see the telegram I got from Thurman Munson congratulating me on breaking his record in the Cape Cod League. One of the coolest things I've ever received. I've still got it. But, uh, you know, I come there and, uh, I've always been a good evaluator myself. A real, you know, I think a lot of players aren't very realistic about where they really are. But I could hit. Okay, I didn't hit the ball in the seats enough. Uh, you know, I had a couple of seasons, I think, still 19 or 20 bases, but I wasn't one of those guys. I could hit and run in my sleep. I'd strike out maybe 30 times a year. I'd get 60, 70 hit and run signs a year. I could put it in play. A guy used to hit and run with, with me with a man on third and one out and then fill in. Seriously. But it was, I think when I saw Mattingly and I saw Balboni, those type of guys, I knew there was something that they were looking for that I wasn't going to be able to provide. And it, it was at the, in between the AAA and big league level, I kind of went, you know what? And um, so they offered me an opportunity to coach, come back and play in AAA because the Yankees wanted to win every league. We had six. And as a minor league manager, when you left, camp you were expected to do two things develop players and win your league not necessarily in that order and Mr. Steinbrenner felt like learning how to win was part of the development that's a story for another day you might be right but I think he is right but uh, you know but I was I was able to look at it realistically and go you know what 
uh, I just got married and, uh, I could go and play with another organization, AAA, but I kind of knew that I was kind of stuck in between being a left, left guy, you know, left field and a little first base was all that was really open to me. So I took the opportunity Yankees gave me and ran with it. And that's the short story. Well, you signed, you signed in 77. So you, you play seven season. When does when do you start thinking about that as a player? Because probably, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you go into it, go, no, my dream is to be a big league player. When did it kind of dawn on on you, like you were just explaining to me, like, you know, I knew I just didn't have what a Don Mattingly had, so maybe I had to well, take another know, I, route. Yeah, you know, I never was a pull hitter. I could, I could put anybody in play, and, you know, I, it was a shame to strike out back then, and that, in my mind, said, you know, I went make my whole little league year and didn't strike out until the last year. And Ronnie Wedgworth struck me out. Not that I remember it, the last game. But you know, it was just a different era of what was important. There was shame in striking out that you had failed having three chances just to touch a ball in fair territory. But you know, I'm not saying good or bad. It was just a different, different generational value system for baseball. And uh, Heck, you know, I, I, I come out of college, I hit 360 in the Florida State League. The next thing I know, after half a year, I'm a double A. I think the first time I saw Mark Langston's slider, I went, hmm, there's a little something different going on here. I remember <laughs> it was about halfway through my uh, AAA season, I kind of looked around and said, man, I'm seeing a pretty good picture every night. I can't imagine what it's like up there. And yeah, I just I knew what they were looking for and the type of people they were going after, and I didn't have that skill set. I remember a Triple A veteran manager said, "But I turned you in as as a first rate bench hitter in the big leagues." <laughs> that was that was as close as I got. So <laughs> maybe I could take me off the bench and I put it in play somewhere. So fast forward to '85. It's your first managing gig, Penn League. Um, mm-hmm. when you t- first took the helm, who, who were your mentors? Who, who did you go into that first year going, all right, I learned this from him and this from him, or did you have anybody? You know, I, I'm real careful about just saying this was the guy, you know, I got to tell you, bro, I learned as much from guys that were challenged along the way about what not to do. You know, you learn from them too. You think, okay, that could have been handled differently. I, I don't want to do that. Uh, probably the best minor league man. Johnny Oates was really good. I had him in double A. We won the Southern League Championship. I remember thinking, you know, I played for Stump Merrill for a while. I played for uh, a lot of different guys. I think coaching my first year, I was a hitting coach in Florida State League with Barry Foote and Dave LaRoach. Learned a lot of things there. Just picked up something along the way. I remember I got the call in a phone booth in instructional league. I was down as outfit instructor and Bobby Hoffman, the farm director, said, we think you can manage. We'd like you to manage Oneana next year. You go to extended spring, then you go to Oneana, then I want you to go run instructional league. So I went from February until Thanksgiving. That's when instructional league used to be over with. And you find out quickly what you want to do this for a living. And uh, so I never did it with the idea of taking it to the big leagues. I just take whatever job they gave me, grind the hell out of it, and see where it takes me. You know, these people always thinking, oh, okay, after X number of days, I need to be at this level and that level. No, take what you've got and grind the heck out of it, and you might be surprised where it leads you. 87, you go to Fort Lauderdale, 
and then 89, you go to double A, you're, you're managing the Eastern League, and then you get the call. Uh, 1990, you're going to the big leagues. I think Gene Michaels was the was the general manager, if, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and someone you mentioned who, who you played for, Stump Merrill, was the skipper. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was your role? I don't even know what it was. I, I, I knew that you got to the big leagues in 90, but what was what was your role on that coaching staff? Well, you know, when I first went to the big leagues, it was Bucky Dent as his eye in the sky coach. Mr. Sandler had invented this. Some people call it the spy in the sky. I had to walk and talk you up in the press box, kind of in a separate box, and I was late radioing down to the dugout about positioning players. Yeah, that's right, Brett. We were moving and shifting players back in 90. It wasn't something new that they just came up with. <laughs> but uh, we were doing that from above, and I had the charts for this. And that. So about a third of the way through the season, Mr. Stumbenner decided to fire Bucky Dent and his staff. And I'm in Fenway Park at, at the time, I just took my daughter uh, on the duck rides there, and I come back to the hotel, and there's a press conference. I go, oh, my God, am I going to be fired? You know, I, first time I've been to big leagues. You know, I was still in batting practice and working with the outfielders and setting the defense, and, but never in the dugout during the game. And So I run to – heck, I was sitting in front of my locker at 11.30 in the morning for a night game with my uniform on, seeing if I still had a job. They came in and asked me to be the third base coach for, uh, for Stump. And I did for a year and a half. And then uh, when they let him go, um, Mr. Steinmeier had just been suspended and there was a lot of things going on. But, uh, you know, I ended up managing the club in 92. 92, you go 76 and 86. And then 93, you start turning that that thing around. And you go 88 and 74. Uh, Mattingly's on that team. Paul O'Neill, who, who – who became a part of all those world championships and young Bernie Williams you had. Uh, you win manager of the year in 93. Or was that 94? 94, I'm sorry. 94, you keep on the same on the same path. 70 and 43, uh, you guys go wire to wire. But, you know, I was laughing about this when I was seeing that. Nowadays, that 94 strike, you know, it's still right. It's burned into my skull because I was on the Reds. Yours? I was the, Yours? I, yeah, I was the assistant player rep, but we were really good in 94. We went wire to wire, and the, and I had Albert Bell on the show recently, and he was telling me, yeah, 94, we we were going to win it all that year. And then I had Larry Walker from, from the Montreal Expos, and he said, oh, that 94, we would So a lot of us out there claiming we would have won if we didn't go on strike in that 94 season. Well, y'all always been chasing us. Because <laughs> you know, they all been looking up at us and all the dust settlements. You know, we had a great peace team there. We had, uh, I'm sorry, Brett, we had, a, we had a great peace team. We had just things that fit back when you carried at 10 or 11 pitchers. You had position players that brought certain things. You had long relievers. It just, and we had, had some, some injuries. We were just starting to get everybody healthy when uh, the strike came. We were getting ready to run off and hide. And, you know, we were almost 30 games over 500 with 40, 50 games to play. And, you know, certain things you remember, like yesterday, I rem- uh, when it happened, I can remember when I saw Bud Sealy call off the season. I couldn't believe that we were actually doing that. And, uh, you know, Felipe Alou, who was the manager of the and I talk about because we both had the best record in each league at the time. And uh, we always kid each other about who would have won. But, you know, you remind me that there were some other teams that thought they were pretty good that year, too. Oh, in our in our mind, in the Cincinnati Reds that year, Davy was Davy Johnson was our skipper. Oh, we had no doubts. This was it. 
you know, 95, we had a really good team, but 94, that was the team. And then, yeah. but it's funny how we all, you know, there's about four or five of us that were having really good years that year. We would all want, if you ask us, uh, you're voted manager of the year and 95, you come back, uh, 79 and 65. You got to manage your first all-star, all-star team. Uh, take me through that a little bit. Well, that's back when you had to pick the all-star team for the most part. And I had to keep a notebook the whole season. You know, I also confess now, when it came down to really close, I took my own guys from the Yankees. I had to look at them the rest of the year. But we had some guys worthy of it. But, you know, I, I like the way they do it better now with the fans. and Because the manager back then, Brad, it was a challenge. And you made so many people mad. And, and you, you'd like to win the game, but you're trying to get everybody in the game. You're trying to keep... Um, you know, we played like three game or four game set against the Rangers and then the All-Star game. I was there for seven days. It was about 100 degrees every day. It was, you know, everybody had these three days off. Well, we did. And uh, it was tough. But I wouldn't trade it for the world. But, you know, someone asked me, I've been to three All-Star games, two as a coach, and I, I've seen there, been there, done that. You know, I don't think people realize what a toll it takes on you, especially when you, those three days are precious for, you know, to recharge your battery during the, during the season. But, you know, the All-Star game, I, had, I remember I had Frank Thomas, uh, Mo Vaughn, Tino Martinez, trying to get all three of those guys in the game. Of course, Frank made it easy. After the third inning, he just said, I'm, I'm out of here and walked out of the dugout. And I went, okay, I'll put Mo in. Nope, he left. I'll put Tino in. <laughs> Tino will stay. Yeah. Tino <laughs> But the pitching boy, getting that, I didn't get to enjoy the game. You're just trying to get through the game and send everybody back to their club healthy, and you're trying to get people in the game. And oh yeah, let's let's win if we can. Ninety five, and uh, you know, I was in Seattle as a rookie. I came back in the early two thousands, and that ninety five uh, postseason, Yankees, Mariners. Mariners end up beating beating you guys, and because of that, my my uh, you know in my second tenure, my last five years with the Mariners, I had to see that Edgar double uh, against the Yankees about two hundred times, and, and they still play it to this day. Um, it kind of it, it, it kind of huh? You know they held Junior at third base. He's sitting around through the stop sign, and then he ran through it. And and I'll tell you, yeah. it, it changed it changed Seattle baseball. They end up getting the voting on the new stadium because of that. And an exciting time, you know, for Seattle. I was there early, and and there wasn't much winning going on. That was kind of their first. Uh, they got their first, you know, kind of feeling of what it was like to win. But uh, ended up beating your your ball club, and and uh, you know, with the captain at first base. Tell me how that all transpired after that, because that was the last year you managed the uh, the Yankees. Yeah. Well, you know, I'd been there 19 years with the Yankee organization. It broke my heart to leave, but uh, basically Mr. Steinbrenner wanted to fire four coaches, and I just couldn't let it happen. I could not walk in a locker room and continue to preach the things I was preaching to the players. If they knew I'd given up my coaches, like, uh, you know, I knew they were part of the reason why we were there. Those four guys went on to have – 20, 30-year career, so I picked the right guys. But, you know, Brett, that, that thing after the strike, as you well know, it was ugly. Fans were mad, and rightfully so. Everybody, it was just a tough time in baseball. Going to camp with replacement players was awful. Probably the low, life, low light of my career. And 
it was the finally I remember the last out we were opening up Coors Field with the replacement players and finding out in the seventh inning that the strike had been settled and we were headed back for spring training a quick one. For two weeks with the regular guys, I mean, I never been so happy. I was peeling off my jersey, running up the runway, and but we get there, and I think the the best thing I can say about those playoffs in '95 is I had more people tell me that rekindled their love of the game and allowed them to to basically forgive baseball for what it went through. I wish people, when they're thinking about possibly having another strike, they should come talk to some of the guys that went through that '94 and '95. It was awful, and. Baseball almost didn't recover, and a lot of people talked about that series kind of putting the joy back in it. You know, it wasn't like Seattle didn't have a good team. There was a guy named Jay Buterin Wright. There was a pitcher named Randy Johnson. There was a guy named Griffey. There was a guy named Edgar Martinez. There was a guy named Tino Martinez. I can keep going. Uh, Wilson was a great catcher. Loved him. Uh, they just had a lot of quality. North Charlton, that was a really good team. Some of the guys hadn't really, you know, had the – hadn't finished or towards were just starting out their careers and people didn't know that much about them, especially being way up there in Seattle. But they were a good team. My gosh, they were good. And it was I know after winning the first two games in New York, I said, How in the world are we gonna win a game in that kingdom? Brett, they should have let me push the plunger on that place. That was a uh, that was not fun to play in that place. I'll tell you, as a hitter, though, Buck, it, it, it was like playing oh, yeah. pinball. It was like playing pinball. <laughs> Everything was fast, you know, short porch and right. It was a high fence, but it was short. Uh, the yep. only tough thing for me when I first got to the big leagues, since Kingdom was my first my first stadium when I got to the big leagues, the only thing, really? it was a little it was a little tough to see. There was something about yep. it in there, and, and uh, my eyes didn't really work that great inside. But as far as just the surface and as a hitter, I was a hitter's paradise. <laughs> but oh, you, the, the it, turf that we played on back then compared to the, the stuff they play on now, I tell people, you know, the Rangers are talking to me. I knew the groundskeeper there about their new stay, and I said, do yourself a favor and put the turf down. You'll be glad you did because everybody tries to grow that grass inside. It just doesn't work. Seattle's got the best inside turf now, but they've got it open there with some air flowing around. I got to tell you, the Houston grass surface is really – challenged let's put it that way it's you don't really see it on tv because they put a lot of green sand in the holes it's just hard to get a good root structure i know being in arizona it's hard to get a good baseball surface and now most of these teams arizona included are going back to the to the turf they've got now is so good you might as well put it in there no i agree and the turf we were playing on oh it was a nightmare oh. I, but as a oh. young player buck as a young player i remember going to cincinnati and, you know, I'm 24 years old and, and Larkin's my shortstop and mm-hmm. Barry's a few years older than me. And, and, you know, after every game, he's got ice packs on both his knees, shoulders. And I said, how old are you? He goes, you'll see a few more years on this turf and you're going to be just like me. We'll fast forward mm-hmm. about five or six years. I was that guy. <laughs> ice packs mm-hmm. on both knees. That turf will wear you out. I liked playing on it. It was a faster game. It was a. It was more of a step and a dive defensively, but yep. man, it does. It it takes its toll on you after a while. Um, so you left. You left New York. First of all, how was it managing in New York? I know you go on to three other stops and, and long ten, and long tenures, but New York's different. It's just a different animal than anywhere else. Uh, how was that from a media standpoint? Because you got so many different newspapers and blogs competing for that headline, and 
as a player that was never a home team player there, but visited a lot. When I went to Yankee Stadium, when I went to Shea Stadium, it seems, okay, this is a four-day circus, but I can kind of do this for four days and then I leave. You guys have to deal with it on a daily basis. Was there a mindset of, all right, this is the way it is, and I've just got to let this you know, roll off my back, and this is the way we behave? It's different in New York than anywhere else. You know, it is, but, you know, I got to tell you, Brett, through the years, I think maybe because of my upbringing, first of all, New York will sniff out a phony in a heartbeat. The guys work way too hard, and the competition for stories and accuracy really bred for some, you know, the relationships, you know, back then, and I think about the guys that were covering the teams, covering the the Yankees on the beat, you know, now they're calmest and they're going to bigger and better things. The Thomas and people that wrote had to be accurate. They had to be hard workers. And I, I got along with them. I got to tell you, friends to this day with a lot of them. But, you know, it was really when I left and went to some of the one paper towns or places that only had a couple and didn't really have all these talk radios that just shock stuff throwing up against the wall and having a deal in there. But, you know, you, you try to be, you know, treat them with respect and you try to uh, be honest, you know, and understand that. Sometimes you can't tell truths that hurt innocent people. You just don't aren't able. And as a manager, one of your job descriptions is to wear it. You're going to wear some stuff. It's just that's part of your job description. It's not fair, but that's what you what you have to do. So, you know, the, the New York thing. There were certain players that could play there, and that's one thing that Gene Michael uh, Stick was so good at was understanding who would trip there. You know, he did his homework on Paul O'Neill, and when we brought Bunny Williams up and Mariano Rivera up, and you know, and uh, Andy Pettit and Jorge Posada and all those guys, they had a certain pedigree and a certain makeup about them that we we knew that some of the challenges. But, uh, you know, I signed a one-year contract to manage the Yankees, so I was on a one-year day-to-day plan. You know, and that was fine. I was getting an opportunity. I was going to run with it. But, you know, it broke my heart to leave there. But I had to make a stand, and I didn't have anything else out there. But it, when my contract ran out at, Midnight at mid twelve oh one, I got a call from the owner of the new team in Arizona, and uh, you know I listened to what he had to say. And that that really is where it gets interesting for me, Jerry Colangelo, uh, Diamondback. So ninety six, and we just recently had Pat Williams on on the program, who you know did the uh, expansion with the Orlando magic. And he walked me through it. He said, Brett, I've done a lot in my career, but nothing was like getting ready for that first draft. And that, and that maiden voyage, you signed on with the diamondbacks in 96. Graziola junior was the general manager. You had two years to prepare for, for the launching of the diamondbacks in 98. What were those two years like for you? Because you're in at the, you know, you're in at ground zero. You're starting from scratch here. You got two years to get ready. How, how, it seems to me like it'd be a pretty cool venture. Oh, it was. I'll tell you this, but someone called me up and said, Hey, Buck would like for you to run the expansion draft again. The process I'd go, Thank you. No, thank you. I almost died. I got to tell you, I've never worked that much. <laughs> People think I was out there playing golf for two years. Oh, my God. It was seven days a week. I was in Korea one week, in Japan another week, Venezuela, Dominican, Puerto Rico, Mexico. And we're, you know, drafts. We had two drafts going on. We had uh, spring training. We had farms clubs. We had to hire coaches and managers for the minor leagues and scouts and pro scouts. And, oh, yeah, run the expansion draft. But it was a blast. I mean, it was, uh, I mean, we met for, I think, six weeks straight right before the expansion draft. 
And the feeling, Brett, when those unprotected lists came across the the uh, printer for the first time, we got to see the guys. Because we had already prepped the board. I mean, it, the draft drafted itself. And probably the best exercise in that whole thing was the time I spent asking the Marlins and the Rockies, if you had it do over again, what would you have done differently? And the one common theme was don't fall in love with expansion draft eligible players because they're out there for a reason. Teams have left them unprotected for a reason. So what we did was we found out who other clubs coveted that were unprotected. And we proceeded to turn over our 35 picks, I think 28 of them, something like that, and get established players that we wanted. And that's how we got Luis Gonzalez. That's how we got, you know, I could be rattle off seven or eight other guys. Omar Dahl came in the draft, but we, and we kept, you know, four or five guys out of the draft. We turned that draft over. A lot of it had to do with advice I got from some, some people I really uh, respected and trusted that said, uh, you're going to make a mistake if you're trying to put together a championship club that, with the pieces available in the expansion draft. So we drafted them. But it was fun. You know, we were in New Arizona for spring training and minor league camp. We kicked out some good players to help our club. And it was very gratifying. It's hard work, really hard work. But it, uh, it, I wouldn't trade it for the world. It was an interesting time, too, because the Marlins came in oh. the league, like you said, the Rockies and the Diamondbacks. And it's amazing the buzz inside the clubhouses from the player's perspective, because everybody's going, I wonder who they're going to protect, who they're not, or, or, or am I going to get drafted? Am I going to be on the protected list, unprotect? It's pretty interesting. And then it comes down to it, and usually yeah. nothing that you thought was going to happen happens. Yeah, we – there was so I could tell you so many stories in that thing about trades and this and that, whatever, and behind the scenes. And I would, it was something. But we, uh, it was it was an interesting process to understand how the whole thing. You look at players and gentlemen. I know how when we traded for Matt Williams and the people that we had. I had to draft in order to get Matt Williams. I had to draft guys to get Travis Fryman to get Matt Williams. You know, and the whole draft was a, it was like a chess game. You know, and then all of a sudden, if, if Tampa came in and took a player that messed up your draft, that was the X factor that you didn't know who they were going to take. So as much information I could get about who they liked and didn't like really helped me. I got one for you, Brett. So I, Gary Colangelo comes in and said, listen, uh, we won the coin toss and we can take one and four or two and three back to back. Which one do you want? Well, I know what I said, but about three others said the other. Which one would you take, Brett? You're, you get the draft, and you can take one and four, which means you get first player in the draft, and then four, or you get two and three back-to-back. Um, I'm going to take two and three. You bet you are, okay? I'm going to close. I, that way I know Tampa can't touch me. I can get my two starting pitchers. I took Brian Anderson and Jeff Supon, not that I remember. And because the biggest issue we had was finding starting pitchers. And uh, we had the biggest turnaround in baseball history from the 98 team to the 99 team. But a lot of that had to do with the pitching that we were able to, to get, you know, the Stolomires and Randy Johnsons and, you know, Omar Dahl and Brian Anderson and Jeff Simpson all came out of that draft and uh, those three guys. But uh, the two and three back-to-back I thought was big. And I was in a minority, and Jerry went along with me, and it worked out well. It is pretty amazing. 98, 65, and 97, which you kind of expect that first year growing pains. You don't know, you know, what we got. But to turn around, you won 100 games in 99. Um, and then you go to 2000, uh, 
And you mentioned some of the pitchers yet. You had Randy Johnson, Schilling, Stottlemyre, uh, Matty Williams at third base, Gonzalez, Finley. Who was your second baseman on that club? Jay Bell. Jay Bell, Jay Bell came from Pittsburgh, yeah. was a shortstop. That's right. And put, we put Tony Wormack at shortstop. And that's we right. Drafted, we got, got Travis Lee in a draft error that Minnesota had made. Um, Steve Finley was a huge sign for us. Baseball that's player, right. really could play center field. He was a big – Damian Miller and Kelly Stinnett behind the plate, baseball players. But uh, we had a guy named Eurebio Durazo. We got out of Mexico. That, I don't know, Left-handed hitter. Re- oh, my God, did he hit. I sent Matt I Williams on a rehab to El Paso, our double-A club, and he came back. I always asked him, do you see anything you like there? He goes, you got this guy down there. He's got arms about half a foot long. You can't get in on him. This guy, Durazo, can hit, but he's legit. I go, really? Sure enough, about a month later, he's in the big league. He could rake at one time. My God. Yep. So we go to 2000, and that's the last year for you. So what happened in Arizona for you to leave Arizona? Um, long story. Just uh, it was time. I, I think there were some things. I was a little naive, Brett, okay? I lost my naivety that offseason in baseball about what goes on kind of behind the scenes. And, you know, that first year we were just kind of keeping on our own games. You couldn't find any people ever people ducking behind stones out there in cactus. And the next year we won 100, and, geez, they were coming out of the woodwork. And then the next year, you know, it's just some things that uh, without getting into them, you know, I've turned the page on it. You kind of, you know, I guarantee you can remember sometime when you kind of left, lost your naivety about what might go on behind the scenes. And you go, really? That that happened? I didn't. I wasn't even aware of that. You're just trying to win a baseball game and, treat people like you'd like to be treated. And I know Jerry has come back since then and talked about that whole thing and some of the regrets he might have. But uh, without naming any names or anything, I, I just, it's it's part of my uh, bio, so to speak, and I'm, I'm okay with it. I'm real comfortable with the way I treated people and, and the work that I put in out there for the people. And, you know, I got paid for it and, I impacted a lot of good people's lives along the way. 2002, you step away from managing for, for a year and you become ESPN analyst. Um, do you enjoy that or did you say, no, I got to get back into managing because it's going to happen yeah, real yes quick. You're going to go to Texas. You know what? I, that's a good question. I, I uh, You know, it verified a lot of things I thought about TV, uh, even media in general. And he understands the things. And uh, live TV was tough, man. The things that we used to describe things in the dugout, you couldn't describe on national TV. You had to clean it up. And uh, I got to, <laughs> That's you know, right. good people, Carl Ravitch, Harold Reynolds. I mean, I got to meet some good people that had a passion for baseball. John Crook. You know, I'm going to leave out a few people. But, you know, it's along the way you – yeah, I remember when we, when we played us a coach feeling there in Arizona, kind of back to that. You know, he was hurt at the time. And uh, I remember Joe saying, Buck, you know, this guy's hurt. He's got some shoulder issues. I said, that's why he's available, Joe. I said, if you, know, if you wait till this guy's healthy, you're not going to be able to reach him. And uh, we knew that we were going to have to rehab him for a year. But, uh, you know, I just, the thing I sold, sold our, G, our owner on was that, you know, if you get Randy Johnson, Kurt Schilling, 
and they win the games they start in in the playoffs for world champions. He goes, what do you mean? I said, take a look at the off days. You only have to win those, you know, if they win, they pitch twice and they win both their starts, that's four. And that's how we ended up getting Kurt Schilling. And we moved a lot of guys that uh, were, on, were getting ready to head the other direction uh, with their stuff. But, you know, the whole thing with, uh, you know, Texas was uh, was a lot of fun too. But uh, I'm sorry, I, what, I lost my train of thought. What were we talking about before I branched off on Kurt Schilling, Brett? That was fun. He was some kind of pitcher. Best pitcher I ever had, day in, day out. He's the best. Well, I think – well, I think I think that year when they ended up winning, it was one of the most uh, – that was 2001. It was one of the most impressive performances I've seen by that one-two punch with Randy and Schilling. The only thing I've seen modern day, you know, in, in recent history is the performance that Bumgardner put on in, in the mid yeah. – mid 2000 and teens. I forget if it was 14, 15 or 16. That was something I I've never seen before, but that, but that Randy Johnson shilling one, two punch was nasty. Oh, they fed off each other. You know, shilling would pitch a shutout and he'd walk by Randy and the Doug Allen's way up or come out in the eighth inning and go top that one tomorrow. You big blankety blank and Randy. Oh, he's just snorting here. He'd come the next day. Those two guys, my gosh, they were fun to watch. And, uh, I remember one time I took Randy out of a game and somehow they blew the save. Next time I walked down, so that's it, RJ. And, you know, he's just breaking a sweat at 120 pitches. And he was a, a freak of physicality. You know, people, you had to throw away how you conventionally manage pitchers when you had him. And he goes, who are you bringing in? I said, mm, so-and-so. He goes, no, I'll finish it then if you're bringing that guy in. I mean, he was, yeah, we, we had his own signs. I'd say, hey, Listen, if you want to bunt, get, let us know what you're doing. If you want to, because I said, if we put bunt on you, hit. We put hit on you, bunt. If we put steal on you, don't steal. I mean, just just you come up with your own signs and you tell us what you feel like doing. And he said, Oh no, I'm not doing that. That's a good job. But maybe uh, when it came, it's like Lou told me. Pinelli says you don't like him every fifth day, and we did. Yeah, Randy, he's, you know, I got a chance to play behind that 99. I got a chance to play behind that uh, that Maddox Moltz Glavin. And that was pretty impressive to play D behind. But in the in the early 90s, when Randy finally started to become the Randy Johnson, we know that dominant Randy Johnson. I've never played yeah. defense behind a more dominant pitcher. If he was on, oh, I don't God. care. I don't care if it's the all-star team and the other dugout. You got no chance tonight. It was it was unbelievable to watch. All right, so you go to the Rangers, 03 to 06, your manager of the year in 04. Uh, you inherit Alex Rodriguez. I remember those years. I was with the, the Mariners, and, and uh, we go over to play Buck Walters, Texas Rangers. But uh, Alex was in, the, in those formidable years. I mean, he was, he was making a ton of money. He, he signed an unprecedented contract at the time. Now it's kind of common to, to sign those $250, $300 million deals. But back then, it was, he was a trailblazer. And the fact is, he was, li- he was living up to it. It's not like he was going out there and putting up mediocre numbers. He was hitting 300 with 50 homers and, 100 and 140, 150. When you take over the Texas Rangers, um, how was that for you compared to the other stint you had in Arizona and in New York? You know, the, the, the Texas situation was, uh, you know, I, I really respected John Hart and everything he set for and what he had done in Cleveland and um, you know, they had signed Alex Rodriguez. And, you know, we, we later figured out that uh, 
you couldn't have one third of your payroll in one player, especially in Texas, and 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 be able to put a competitive club together. But you know, Alex did his part. He was great there. I mean, you look at his numbers, his time in Texas. But um, you know, we got back real competitive. In fact, we came close to winning our division, but uh, we could never get the pitching uh, needed. We didn't have the you know really the financial to to get get pitching, and we couldn't produce enough of our own through the draft without throwing anybody on the bus. It's just a fact. And uh, you can't win without it. And But it was fun. You know, I, met, you know, I promised my children that when we went to Texas that I would let my son go to high school there for four years. My daughter went to Southern Methodist University. In fact, she went to law school after there. Nathan, after he got out of high school, went to TCU. We'd lived there for almost 20 years. So Texas was a good place for me and my family. And uh, we stayed there. Airports easy in and out, direct just about everywhere. And, you know, in Texas, we had some great players. Michael Young, uh, Mark Teixeira uh, had some big years along the way. But I can't name a whole lot of pitching. You know, Kenny Rogers was towards the end of his career. Uh, we just couldn't uh, keep the others. We didn't have any trouble scoring runs, and it was such a hitter's park. Um, it was hard to put together a pitching staff in that uh, in that ballpark. I, I, I'll tell you, being a part of that division at that time, I love coming to Texas. Oh, yeah, everybody did, especially with our pitching staff. <laughs> <laughs> After 06, you, you go 07, you head to the Indians as a special advisor, and then you're back to ESPN before you start uh, your longest tenure with a ball club, and that's the Orioles. Um, and, and you mentioned Johnny Oates when you were coming up. And and I know you know you wore the number twenty six in in Baltimore. Was that for Johnny Oates or was that just a yeah. coincidence? Yeah, I called Gloria, his daughter, I mean his wife, and uh, his kids, and asked them how they felt about it. And I thought it'd be a great honor, especially the the you know spotlight it would bring to John. And uh, you know, Johnny was special to me. I remember I had an incentive bonus, but in AAA, that if I stayed in AAA for ninety days, I'd get a thousand dollar bonus. Might have been fifteen hundred. That was big money back then, okay? And I was making $900 a month playing AAA. So the the uh, 89th day, um, I uh, Johnny sent me down. He said, you know, I was one of those guys at the end of my career that I played. Um, you know, I went to clubs to, to help them win towards the end of your career. And with the Yankees, they kept people around that could help them win. So, you know, he said, well, hey, we're in the playoffs. We want you to go down to AA and help them down there and I just kind of hee-hawed around he goes what's wrong I said nothing he goes what's wrong I go well I'm a day away from getting my my incentive bonus and he goes really he says why don't you go out and uh your locker I gotta do make a phone call and I'll talk we'll continue this in a second he called me back in and said you're gonna stay another day or two he had made a phone call and uh and uh, asked to keep me for a day or two I'll never forget that at his funeral his son part of the eulogy was uh but Dad's still waiting on his cut of that money, <laughs> but little things like that. John was uh, and going to Baltimore. He uh, it really had his uh, fingerprints all over it. So you take over a ball club in 2010. You end up staying there nine years. You go to the playoffs three times. You won another Manager of the Year in, in uh, 14. You won the AL East that year. Talk about a few of the players. A few of the uh, special players that you had in Baltimore. You had that was the you had Adam Jones and and uh, Manny Machado is now with the San Diego Padres. 
there's got to be a lot more sprinkled in that I haven't haven't mentioned. But talk about those Oriole years and, and how they were different from the other places you'd been. Because you're there by far the longest tenure, nine years. Yeah, it was, you know, I, I think the owner um, and I got along well. The best situations, Brett, are the ones where the owner, the GM, and the manager are connected at the hip. And they're on the same page. And, you know, I was always talking about who are we? How are we going to do this? You know, how are we going to compete with the Yankees and the Red Sox and the payrolls? You know, we just, the things, we were looking for people that fit our MO. And uh, we had some good players there. I'll show you a situation that gets better. I'll show you some guys that took some bullets along the way to, to set you up. It's not always about you. And, uh, you know, we had Adam Jones there. We had Nick Marcakis. But their makeup and the way that we had to do things kind of fit the way we went about our, our MO, so to speak. And, you know, I said, what are, we, what are we willing to do that's, you know, that the Yankees and the Red Sox and those teams aren't willing to do with all those payrolls? And, you know, we could out uh, relationship people. We could out, uh, you know, scout them, out, you know, uh, go after a certain six-year free agent, those tweener guys, and uh, the what-ifs that, that you need during the season when somebody gets hurt. And we were able to pick up the Steve Pearsons and the J.J. Hardys and have some players from our system start filtering in like Manny Machado and John Scope and Matt Weeders. And we took Nate McLeod towards the end of his career, and he was a great kick in the pants because he fit, fit us and what we had to do. We traded for Chris Davis, and he had some big years for us. And, you know, there's just a lot of things. We, we went out and got a Nelson Cruz and brought his makeup into our clubhouse. And, you know, Brett, without – you know, getting completely away from analytics. There's some, we, we had we had some people in our clubhouse that were special. And as a manager, you need not to overmanage them. You put them in there. You go get good people, and you and go get good coaches, and you get out of their way and let them, you know, formulate that that culture that you're looking for to play in a you know a seven month season, seven days a week. I chuckle at football coaches. You, know, you guys play once a week, man. Try strapping that thing on, you know, seven days a week for seven months and see how you're doing. So. There's no phonies and there's no Cinderella's in baseball. You'll get exposed if you got a weakness. Uh, and I think it's so interesting because I, you know, I this is this this game has been my life, and and I look at it from all aspects of the game. And and it, it sometimes it drives me crazy when I see in the off season moves certain clubs make certain certain moves, and I think you know don't you know that that guy doesn't fit on that team with his salary and on this team he he was right. a role player and he did really good in that role, but you put him on this team and put him in the three hole and make him the man. Don't you realize that? That's not a good position. You're not going to get the same result. It drives me crazy. It's like, I don't know. There's just so much more to it. And you've been evaluating and been in this game your whole life. And there's so much more to it than just numbers on paper, put them in this room. It really is important how you construct that room and, and the fact that we're all on the same page here and the personalities you put with other personalities. They're so important. I see it. it and not to not that I'm saying, oh, I see everything and I know how to do it. I, I just see things differently. I see certain moves and I go, how can you not know that that's not a good fit right there? But yet they're made all the time. So as an evaluator, that's that's you probably got to see the same things. Well, the construction of a roster, a major league roster and a 40 man roster is an art. It's not a science. Without, it's an without art. a doubt. And, you know, the ability to understand, you know, what certain 
parts of a roster have to bring and who they are. I think, you know, in the age that we're in, it seems to me they're making more mistakes on player evaluation than any time I can remember because they're having a lot of trouble with that six tool. We know the five tools, but that six tool is, you know, who can, you know, who can play at this level uh, other than just skill level. You know, it's a lot more than a spin rate and an exit velocity. There's, you know, whose finger is going to shake when it's on the trigger in the eighth and ninth inning. I mean, there's, and one of the ways you amass this information is through uh, relationships and phone calls and communication and constantly finding people who have been in the arena with them that know what they're looking at. You know, I call them boots on the ground guys that really know, you know, it might be a clubhouse guy. It might be a, uh, a minor league manager. Heck, it might be a high school coach. You know, I've made all those phone calls before acquiring players. And, you know, but you got to know what you're looking for. You know, who are we? You know, we used to talk about that all the time in spring training of the Orioles. Who are we? What kind of guys were we looking for? You want people to go, that's, that's a guy that could play for the Orioles. That would fit them and what they do. And, um, you know, it was fun to watch. And uh, it was entertaining. And sometimes I think with the – I don't know, the pursuit of efficiency in today's game, we've somehow lost the entertainment value, you know, because, you know, some of the things, uh, it's got to be entertaining too. And, and we got to certain situations with a five-man rotation and 11 or 12 pitchers through trial and error. You know, we got there for a reason. I mean, there were a lot of things that we found that there was a better way to do it and uh, without trying to reinvent the wheel. But, you know. We had we had a great time in Baltimore. I enjoyed my time there, and you know I know the shelf life of managers, and I know how long it normally is. Uh, you go in and treat people like you'd like to be treated, and realize that it, it always won't end perfectly. But you know, I'm trying. All right, Buck. I've won. I've wondered this: your time in New York, uh, starting in '92 as the as the skipper, to your years in. Uh, Arizona to Texas and finishing up with the Orioles. How much different of a manager were you in 2018 than when you first started? Oh, geez, Aaron. Uh, I hope, I hope a lot, Brett. You know, I, uh, we all take uh, life's experiences and uh, things and that are thrown at us and we learn from them. You know, you, you take, okay, I'm gonna, it's like you're taking a little bucket. I'm going to put something over there and keep that. This is, but it's always been about treating people like you want to be treated and, uh, you know, and uh, just trying to do the right thing, have some ethics and morals involved to you when you're trying to deal with people's lives. I mean, heck, I used to get up in the morning on release and cut day in spring and make sure I was shaved and got a good night's sleep, had a hot cup of coffee. I wanted that guy to think that I would put a lot of thought into, you know, his life, even if it was just sending him down for a couple of weeks at the, uh, so I think regardless of where you where you've been, you pick something up from every place. You know, I what's the adage that uh, if you want to really give somebody a compliment, ask him what he thinks or she thinks, and that's important. I've learned a lot from people. You know, every spring we would say, "Is there a better way to do this cutoff and relay, this bunt defense, this pickoff?" And I would get something from J.J. Hardy. I would get something from. Uh, you know, Matt Weeders. They'd come up with something a better way to do it. So you, you're open. You learn things everywhere you've been, and you realize that uh, you don't have all the answers, but there are some absolutes that you don't stray away from through the years. As a player, um, I, I get asked this quite a bit. 
and and they want to compare the NFL, the NBA, uh, to being a big league skipper. And they said, mm-hmm. how much does a manager, how much difference does a manager make? I, I've been asked that question. I say, you know, I yeah. haven't thought about it. I, I got to play in my career for some pretty prominent guys. I got to play for Lou and Boach and uh, Davey Johnson early in my career. I got to play for Bobby Cox one year, and and, and I looked at wow. all those different personalities. There were there were great traits. So why are you asking me? Jeez, you no, no, no. no. I just want to I, I just want to wow. lead you into it. But it, it's like I, I don't know it. I think about it, and I'm like, I never thought about it. But I know I never, as a player, hmm. bitched about when we lost a game. Oh, Skipper really screwed us today. It was kind of on the players. How much do you think a manager makes a difference? How many games a year? Well, I think that uh, Billy Martin told me a long time ago, there are some things I, I, I really took from him. One, dumb players get you fired. I always remember that, to let that be the tiebreaker when you're deciding about a player. And it might be somebody from Harvard that's a dumb baseball player. It might be somebody from some podunk place in Louisiana that might be a real smart baseball player. It's a baseball IQ is a big part of it. but And they come in all shapes and sizes, but... He also said that uh, try as you may, Buck, you can't screw up the good ones. You know, you might impact some of the tweeners, and and the biggest thing was putting good people around them so some of the guys sitting on the fence would fall on the right side about, you know, being a winning player. So uh, I think uh, if you've got the horses, you're going to be, you know, somewhat successful. And, you know, let's face it, October's a roll of the dice. When you, you know, you grind like hell for – Six months, seven days a week. You know, I chuckle when I hear a football coach say they weren't ready to play this week. My God, you played ten or fifteen games. You know, spare me. But I, uh, I think you can stir it bad. But if you got a good club, uh, it's 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 really you know sooner or later they're going to seek their level. And uh, some of the best managing I've done is the managing I didn't do. You know, sometimes you got to let somebody fail a little bit. There's a process to coaching and managing players, and you're always trying to get to the end game. you got to understand how that process works. And sometimes a guy has to fail before you get his attention. And uh, there's a certain humbleness that you have to have about it. But I, th- I think you can stir it bad. But if you got the uh, horses uh, trying to overmanage it, can overmanage it can be as big a mistake as anything. But I think understanding who you are and trusting you know, players snip out a phony in a heartbeat, Brett, at our level with the, the seven days a week, tw- almost 20 hours, it seems like you're traveling. And if you're feeding people a shtick or a line of BS, you're going to be exposed so fast. So I thought it was interesting to hear you say, I never went home and said, boy, the manager uh, screwed that game up. I'm sure it had a lot to do with your upbringing. My dad never said one negative word about a coach. He, there was an authority figure there. And later on in life, I find out there was a few of them he didn't particularly care for, but he didn't, he was never going to be a part of giving me an excuse for failure at home. Yeah, I, I just never did. And that's why, yeah, sorry, I led you into it too much, but I got to thinking, I'm like, I, I can never put it on the skip. I mean, the skip sets well, let me the tone. Ask you this, that, and, let me ask, okay. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. I, I want to ask you, what, what did those guys, they were all different types. But what they all have in common? You're talking about Bochy. You're talking about Cox. You're talking about, uh, you know, Lupinelli. You're t- I'm going to miss a couple. But, gosh, those are a who's who. What, did, what are some things they had in common? Presence. Uh, mm-hmm. res- respect from the players. And that – I don't want to skew respect with like or dislike. 
because right exactly you know because because it i didn't love every manager i played for but there was a level of respect first of all i'm always going to respect the position you know (laughs) early in my career there's a couple times buck i got the butt side i wanted to go ring his neck but but i got to a point in my life as a professional where i said this does nothing. This does nobody any good if I resist this. Skipper put it on. I disagree with him. I get it done. Because I'd go back to that dugout, you know, uh, if, if I kind of half-assed it. And now i got to face my teammates for not getting it done. And by the way, I'm 0 for 1 instead of 0 for 0 with a sacrifice. So, so that, yeah, that played into it too. But the presence they had, the tone they set in that locker room, uh, you know, I went on a couple teams and it was so interesting. Well, well, why is so-and-so treated this way and, and so-and-so is treated this way? Well, my, my attitude was, this is the big leagues. Uh, we don't have yeah. time for – because that's what the skipper said. And if the skipper – I think we covered it earlier in the podcast. If the skipper's yeah. going to stick his foot up that guy's butt and give this yeah. guy a hug over here to get the same result, then he's doing his job. And that's how I – You know, Brett, I, yeah. Uh, you know what I do every spring? I put a list up of service time. Everybody in camp, 50 guys, service time from the guy with most service time to the bottom. I said, if you got any questions about why would you do things and who might make that road trip to Port St. Lucie, three-hour drive, just take a look at the uh, the service time up here. And, you know, you earn that two things. And I think a lot of guys uh, kind of misinterpret that as favoritism, but there's a certain respect that you have to earn. And, uh, I don't think guys, I, I look at a lot of the managers and coaches and, you know, but you didn't want your teammates. You cared what your teammates thought, Brett. You didn't want them to think that bunning was beneath you. Okay. You weren't particularly happy about it, but you know, you never, it, it, I always ask when we're acquiring a player, does it matter to him what his teammates think? Okay, because sooner or later that's going to get exposed. If you really don't care, like who are you trying to please? Pleasing me, managers are. Sh- I always thought we were ships passing the night. You know, Billy also said, you know, they're going to mourn you for about five minutes when you're fired, and they're going to wonder who the next guy is coming in there. So do what's right, you know, and and don't have some. I I'll play Attila the Hun if he uh, can help us win. So there's no. I used to have the guy come in and sit in my chair. He'd come in and complain about playing time. I said, come over, sit in my chair. By the time we got through, he couldn't understand why he was still on the club. <clears throat> I said, "Get nice, eight. I'll let you play manager here. Okay, come on over here. Look at these numbers. <laughs> yeah. Why am I even? Why are you even here? I just appreciate a thank you. Yeah. Thanks for saving your hide, not sending you out. Yeah. Regular season versus postseason. Manage any different? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. There's four times you manage, Brett. You manage spring training. A whole different mode of operation. There's regular season. And there used to be this thing. A third way was this 40-man call-up god-awful baseball in September. They've kind of fixed that a little bit where it's only like three call-ups. It used to be awful. And then there's postseason. And you have to manage four different ways. And there's a sense of urgency. You know, sometimes you may not put your best foot forward in a regular season to have a chance to win the next three games. You may not want to burn all your left-handed pitchers. And I think the ability to know when there's not a game there that can be won necessarily. And I thought we saw it last, you know, the other night in Atlanta. When, I'm sorry, in Houston when, you know, they kind of stuck. They won the first game. They kind of stuck with, uh, you know, freed the second game, trying to make sure that all their pieces would be available for the next three games at home. And that's managing. And that comes to experience. You know, you look at the resume of the two guys managing in the 
World Series, you know, that's what it looks like. So, um, yeah, you manage differently, and you, you manage – you don't ask your players to adjust to you. You adjust to your players. And all you're trying to do is put them in a position to succeed. And once they respect that you, that's all you're trying to do, it isn't personal. I just say, if you trust me, you know, I'll put you in a position to make a pretty good living out of this game. So you try to get that developed as soon as you can. And to follow up on your question, you said, what do you look – what did those managers have in common? And yeah. something dawned, and something dawned on me. If if you're on a if you're on an airplane and you look at the flight attendant when the turbulence are really bad, that's the first thing you do. You look at you look at the flight attendant, right? If she if she's if she's panicking, I'm gonna start panicking now. As long as she stays poised, I'm good. Yep. I think that's another thing I found in the really good skippers I played for. Mm-hmm. How are they? Are they all right? If they're all right, I'm going to be all right. But all of a sudden, you're all yeah. right all year, and now all of a sudden, you're not okay. Yeah. Even even the veteran teams look to that skipper, and I think that was well, one a, trait in all of them that they had. No, that's a great point. And I uh, believe me, you might be boiling inside, and once you close that door in your office, and that's why you need to have some coaches you could vent with because you care so much. The players care, and you care, and you know it matters to you, so it hurts. But you know, there's another game in 15 hours. Yeah, it might be a day game later, you know. I uh, so you can't wall around in self pity, and that's one thing I've always tried to do in locker rooms is eliminate the sympathetic ears to BS. You know, you want this guy that's always looking for an excuse to walk around and go, "Well, let me talk to this guy." Oh, wait a minute, he didn't want to hear it. Let me go. I'll bitch to this guy. No, no, let me go. And after a while, you've eliminated all of them. Hey, it's on me. Let's go play. Let's go play the game. And. You know, there's an excuse around every corner if you're looking for it. And it's got to start with you as a manager and the coaches. That, you know, this is what I'm responsible for. And if it's not going well, it's my responsibility. And it's one of the things we tried to preach in Baltimore is accountability and, and responsibility. And let's don't talk about it. You know, I used to tell our players that, you know, your actions are going to speak so loudly, I can't hear a word you're going to say. So don't tell me. Show me. Let's go. And, uh, you know, it's fun to watch guys mature and, and come into their own. We talked about it a little bit earlier. I told you I was going to touch on it before I got you out of here. All right. Where did Buck come from? What's the story behind it? Nat to oh, Buck. Uh, I, want to, I want to know. I have well, a few. You, <laughs> you remember a coach named Ed Napoleon? Coach first day some – well, when I came to the big leagues, I, he was my first manager. And I, he, I brought him – he was the first base coach for us and uh, – Knapp was uh, just as good a baseball man as ever. He was my first manager. I went right to the Florida State League out of college. And uh, after about a month, he said every time he looked up, I was the last player leaving, the first player there. And I never had any clothes on, so he started calling me Buck Naked. But we finally shortened it to Buck, thank God. That's between us, so don't tell anybody. I won't now you know. No, I, I had a feeling. I had a feeling because I, I did that too. I'd, I'd wander around. People look at me like, you know, Brett, Brett this isn't normal. I go, I'm with my team here. It's not a big deal. You know, Even you know the first time I, I, I saw a guy, I, I, you first start, in, and you're so impressed when you start in pro ball. I remember we had a pitching coach who would smoke in the shower. I, I looked over and went, oh, my God. Not that it was cool, but I was going, man. That's pretty talented there. How do you do that? 
<laughs> a lot of those back in the day uh, when I was a kid oh. growing up, people have no idea, and I won't mention their names, but those seventies <laughs> teams, those Phillies teams that my dad played on, oh, I come to the ballpark early. They had no clue how many guys were smoking the heaters just you know just out of just out of the reach of the camera, but not so much anymore. Me, but but interesting. I had a third base coach, Cletus Boyer, just a great man in my life. My first one as a major league manager, Brett, if you ever look at it, I disappear up the runway. I think there's two outs in the ninth. Jody reads up, not that I remember. Steve Farth throws him a 3-2 breaking ball, and he pops it up. But before that, Cleet just kind of looked up at me, and he said, hey, kid, he goes, you, you nervous? I said, well, you know, a little bit. And he goes, here, come take a hit off this cigarette. You'll be fine. <laughs> I tell you what, I, I don't remember the last couple of pitches. I'm telling you, Brett. Called a picky cool. You ever heard of a picky yoon cigarette? Oh my God. I'm not no. sure if I want to know what was in it. <laughs> I'm sure the kids today with their with their vapes all over the map. They they, they, well, they had no filter on it, I can tell you that. Buck Show Walter, uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for coming on the Boone Podcast. And what we do each and every time here is we kick it to the voice of the Boone Podcast. Dan Levy come in to ask a question from the fans. Dan. Hey guys, how are you? What's up, Dan? Okay, Buck, this one comes from Jimmy in Manhattan. He wants to know this. You were on the Seinfeld show, and there was a story that said that you didn't even know what the show was when you were on it. Is this true? Well, anybody that's been in a baseball season seven days a week, I mean, I remember my kids, I came home one day, and I got this call from someplace called Seinfeld or something, Seinfeld. And they said, Seinfeld, oh, Dad, you got to do it. It's a great show. So, I don't know, we were out in Anaheim playing the Angels. Got up one morning, went into the auxiliary locker room, and did it. Didn't know at the time they were making fun of Mr. Steinbrenner, so you'll notice I didn't make another appearance. I was told that I didn't need to be doing that show anymore. And I still get residuals, very little, but it costs me more in taxes than it does in what I get. So if someone says they saw the episode, not good news for the accountant, I tell you that. Well, either way, it's one of my favorite episodes, so thank you very much for coming on that. (laughs) That's cool. I didn't have many lines, just uh, something about cotton uniforms and uh, Danny Tartable swing, but they had to make a bunch of cuts because everybody kept laughing at George Costanza. I guess he was a really funny guy, but he was uh, a lot of fun to work with, very humble. Bug Show, Walter, thank you so much for coming on the Bread Boone Podcast. We appreciate it, sir. Hey, thanks for having me. Y'all take care. Mailbag. All right, Booner, you know that sound. Mailbag time, Dan. Mailbag time, Booner. All right, this is that time of year where we are in the World Series, and Fran and Fran from good old Santa Cruz wants to know, Brett, if you're not in the World Series, are you watching it or are you just trying to get ready for the next season? Oh, uh, I would say as a player, 50-50. It's going to depend on who's in the series. Uh, do I got any buddies that I want to watch? Do I care? I, I would say much as a player, not really. Maybe I'd glance at it. I'm going to catch an inning here, an inning there. Uh, but it's not going to be, oh, the game's on at five tonight. As a player, really don't care. Probably bitter that you're not there. All right. 
Back to the mailbag we go. Brett, this one comes from Tom in West Hartford, and he wants to know this. Brett, as soon as the season is done and you go back home, do you go ahead and get yourself fat and start just kind of being lazy, or are you just kind of gearing back up for the, the season immediately? What's your, uh, what's your move as soon as you come back home from a long season played? I would... Uh, I'd usually get, come home and I'd give myself some time, three weeks, uh, three weeks. Not, I, I usually wouldn't let it go a month, uh, but three weeks, kind of do what I want, play a lot of golf, eat what I want. And then I would, I would get pretty strict, especially the second half of my career. I was really strict, uh, dietarily and gym wise, you know, as far as the gym, I might only take a week off and I would get back into training right away. Uh, weight room wise. But the diet usually give myself three weeks. As far as the baseball hitting and and throwing, I'll put the bats and the gloves down till usually after Christmas. All right. Well, you definitely know that you do enjoy a good piece of orange roughy, so I can vouch for the good diet that you're on. <laughs> that it's boring. It is boring, but you know what? It loses weight. I can I can vouch for it. My name is Dan Levy. I'm the technical director and producer of the Boom Podcast. Executive producer is Rich Herrera. Digital content that all gets handled in the Liz Landry department. Please share the Boom Podcast with neighbors and friends, especially family, all those who love sports and the game of baseball. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it. Give it a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boom Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here at the Boom Podcast, I am Tam Levy. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again soon. Thank you.